Chapter 36 of The Conquest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Blanchard. The Conquest by Oscar Mugeau. Chapter 36 A Snake in the Grass. Usually in the story of a man's life, or in fiction, when he gets the girl's consent to marry, first admitting the love, the story ends. But with mine, it was much to the contrary. The story did not end there, nor when we had married that afternoon at two o'clock. Instead, my marriage brought the change in my life, which was the indirect cause of my writing this story. From that time, adventures were numerous. We arrived in Mogori several hours late and remained overnight at a hotel going to the farm the next morning, and then to the house I had rented temporarily. I breathed a sigh of relief when I looked over the fields, and saw that the boy I had hired had done nicely with the work during my absence. The next night about sixty of the white neighbours gave us a charivari, and my wife was much pleased to know there was no coloured prejudice among them. We purchased about a hundred dollars worth of furniture in the town, and at once began housekeeping. My bride didn't know much about cooking, but otherwise was a good housekeeper and willing to learn all she could. She was not a forceful person and could not be hurried, but was kind and good as she could be, and I soon became very fond of her and found marriage much of an improvement over living alone. In May we went up to her claim and put up a sod house and stayed there a while later returning to Mogori County to look after the crops. Our first trouble occurred in about a month. I was still rather angry over the reverend's obliging me to spend the money to go to Chicago. This had cost me a hundred dollars which I needed badly to pay interest on my loan. Letters began coming from the companies holding the mortgages. Besides, I had other obligations pending. I had only fifty dollars in the bank when I started to Chicago and while there drew checks on it for fifty more, making an overdraft of fifty dollars, which it took me a month to get paid after returning home. The furniture required for housekeeping and improvements in connection with the homesteads took more money, and my sister went home to attend the graduation of another sister, and I was required to pay the bills. My corn was gathered, and I now shelled it. As the price in Migori was only 40 cents, at the elevators I called it to Victor, where I received 70 and sometimes 75 cents for it. But as it was 35 miles, that took time and the long drive was hard on the horses. Orleans folks kept writing letters telling her she must send money to buy something they thought nice for her to have. And while no doubt not intending to cause any trouble, they made it very hard for me. Money matters are usually a source of trouble to the lives of newlyweds, and business is so cold-blooded that it contrasts severely with love's young dream. My position was a trying one for the reason that all the relatives on both sides seemed to take it for granted that I should have plenty of money, and nothing I could say or do seemed to change matters. From his circuit the Reverend wrote glowing letters to his daughter and son of what all the people were saying. Everybody thought she had married so well. Mr. Devereux, or Oscar, as they put it, was of good family, a successful young man, and was rich. 
I hadn't written to him and called him dear father. Perhaps this is what I should have done. In a way, it would have been easy enough to write, and since my marriage I had no letters to spend hours in writing. Perhaps I should have written to him. But when a man is in the position I faced, debts on one side and relatives on the other, I thought it would not do to write as I felt, and I could not write otherwise and play the hypocrite, as I had not liked him from the beginning, and now disliked him still more, because I could find no way of letting him know how I felt. This was no doubt foolish, but it was the way I felt about it at the time. My father-in-law evidently thought me ungrateful and wrote Orlene that I should write him, or the folks at home occasionally, but I remained obdurate. I felt sure he expected me to feel flattered over the opinions of which he had written in regard to my being considered rich, but I did not want to be considered rich, for I was not. I had never been vain, and hated flattery. I wanted to tell her people the truth. I wanted them to understand, if they did not, what it took to make good in this western country and that I had alone and wanted their encouragement and invited criticism, not empty praise and flattery. Before I had any coloured people to discourage me with their ignorance of business, or what is required for success, I was stimulated to effort by the example of my white neighbours and friends who were doing what I admired, building an empire, and to me that was a big idea. Their parents before them knew something of business, and this knowledge was a goodly heritage. If they could not help their children with money, they at least gave their moral support and visited them and encouraged them with kind words of hope and cheer. The people in the new country lived mostly on hopes for the first five or ten years. My parents and grandparents had been slaves, honest but ignorant. My father could neither read nor write, had not succeeded in a large way, and had nothing to give me as a start, not even practical knowledge. My wife's parents were a little different, but it would have been better for me had her father been other than the big preacher, as he was referred to, who, in order to be at peace with, it was necessary to praise. What I wanted in the circumstances I now faced was to be allowed to mould my wife into a practical woman, who would be a help in the work we had before us, and some day I assured her we would be well to do and then we could have the better things of life. How long? she would ask, weeping. She was always crying, and so many tears got on my nerves, especially when my creditors were pestering me with duns, and it is Hades to be dunned, especially when you have not been used to it. Oh, I'd say, five or ten years. And then she'd have another cry, and I would have to do a lot of petting and persuading to keep her from telling her mother. This all had a tendency to make me cross, and I began to neglect kissing her as much as I had been doing. But she was good and had been a nice girl when I married her. She could only be made to stop crying when I would spend an hour or two petting and assuring her I still loved her, and this when I should have been in the fields. She would ask me a dozen times a day whether I still loved her, or was I growing tired of her so soon. She was a veritable clinging vine. This continued until we were both decidedly unhappy, and then began ugly little quarrels. But when she would be away with my sister, to her claim, in Tip County, I would be so lonesome without her, simple as I thought she was, and the days seemed like weeks. One day she was late in bringing my dinner to the field where I was ploughing, 
and we had a quarrel, which made us both so miserable and unhappy that we were ashamed of ourselves. By some power for which we were neither responsible, our disagreements came to an end, and we never quarrelled again. The first two weeks in June were hot and dry, and considerable damage was done to the crops in Tip County and in Megory County also. The winds blew from the south and became so hot the young green plants began to fire, but a big rain on the 24th saved the crops in Megory County. About that time the Reverend wrote that he would come to see us after conference, which was then three months away. One day we were going to town, after our little quarrels were over, and I talked kindly with Orlean about her father and tried to overcome my dislike of him for her sake. I had learned by that time just how she had been raised, and that was to praise her father. She would say, You know, Papa is such a big man, or he is so great. She had begun to call me her great and big husband, and I think that had been the cause of part of our quarrels, for I had discouraged it. I had a horror of praise when I thought how silly her father was over it, and she had about ceased and now talked more sensibly, weighing matters and helping me a little mentally. We talked of her father and his expected visit. She appeared so pleased over the prospect and said, Won't he make a hit up here? Won't those white people be foolish over his fine looks and that beautiful white hair? And she raised her hands and drew them back, as I had seen her do in stroking her father's hair. I agreed with her that he would attract some attention and change the subject. When we returned home, she gave me the letter to read that she had written to him. She was obedient and did try so hard to please me. And when I read in the letter, she had written that we had been to town and had talked about him all the way and were anxious for him to visit us, that we had agreed that he would make a great impression with the people out here. I wanted very much to tell her not to send that letter, as it placed me in a false light, and would cause him to think the people were going to be crazy about him and his distinguished appearance. But she was watching me so closely that I could not be mean enough to speak my mind and did not offer my usual criticism. A short time before her father arrived, a contest was filed against Orlean's claim on the grounds that she had never established a residence. We had established residence, but by staying much of the time in Megory County, had laid the claim liable to contest. The man who filed the contest was a banker in Amro, this bank being one of the few buildings left there. I knew we were in for a big expense and lots of trouble, which I had feared and had been working early and late to get through my work in Megory County and get onto her claim permanently. We did not receive the Reverend's letter stating when he would arrive, so I was not at the train to meet him, but happened to be in town on horseback. In answer to my inquiries, a man who had come in on the train gave me a description of a coloured man who had arrived on the same train, and I knew that my father-in-law was in town. I went to the hotel and found he had left his baggage, but had gone to the restaurant, where I found him. He seemed pleased to be in Megory, and after I explained that I had not received his letter, I went to look up a German neighbour who was in town in a buggy, thinking I would have the Reverend ride out with him. When we got ready to go, the German was so drunk and noisy that the Reverend was frightened and remarked cautiously 
that he did not know whether he wanted to ride out with a drunken man or not. The German heard him and roared in a still louder tone. You don't have to ride with me. No, no, no. The elder became more frightened at this and hurriedly ducked into the hotel, where he stayed. I hitched a team of young mules to the wagon the next morning and sent Orlean to town after him. The reverend seemed to be carried away with our lives on the little crow, and we got along fine until he and I got to arguing the race question, which brought about friction. It was as I had feared, but it seemed impossible to avoid it. He had the most ancient and backward ideas concerning race advancement I had ever heard. He was filled to overflowing with condemnation of the white race and eulogy of the Negro. In his idea, the Negro had no fault, nor could he do any wrong or make any mistake. Everything had been against him, and according to the reverend's idea, was still. This he would declare very loudly. From the race question, we drifted to the discussion of mixed schools. The reverend had educated his girls with the intention of making teachers of them, and would speak of this fact with much pride, speaking slowly and distinctly, like one who had years of oratory. He would insist that the public schools of Chicago have not given them a chance. I am opposed to mixed schools, he would exclaim. They are like everything else the white people control. They are managed in a way to keep the colored people down. Here Orlean dissented, this being about the only time she did openly disagree with him. She was firm in declaring there was no law or management preventing the colored girls teaching in Chicago, if they were competent. In the first place, she carefully continued, the school we attended in Ohio does not admit to teach in the city. In order to teach in the city schools, it is either necessary to be a graduate of the normal or have a certain number of years experience elsewhere. I do not remember all the whys, but she was empathetic and continued to insist that it was to some extent the fault of the girls, who were not all as attentive to books as they should be, spending too much time in society or with something else that kept them from their studies, which impaired their chances when they attempted to enter the city schools. She held up instances where coloured girls were teaching in Chicago schools and had been for years, which knocked the foundations from his argument. There are very few coloured people in a city or state which has mixed schools who desire to have them separated. The mixed schools give the coloured children a more equal opportunity and all the advantage of efficient management. Separate schools lack this, even in the large cities where separate schools are in force. The advantage is invariably with the white schools. Another advantage of mixed schools is it helps to eliminate so much prejudice. Many ignorant colored people, as well as many ignorant white people, fill their children's minds with undue prejudice against each race. If they are kept in separate schools, this line becomes more distinct, with one colored child filling the mind of another colored child with bad ideas, and the white child doing likewise, which is never helpful to the community. By nature, in the past, at least, the colored children were more ferocious and aggressive, too much so, which is because they have not been out of heathenism many years. The mixed school helps to eliminate this tendency. With the reverend, it was a self-evident fact that the only thing he cared about was that it would be easier for the colored girls to teach. 
if the schools were separate. I was becoming more and more convinced that he belonged to the class of the Negro race that desired ease, privilege, freedom, position, and luxury without any great material effort on their part to acquire it, and still held to the time-worn cry of no opportunity. Following this disagreement came another. I had always approved of Booker T. Washington, his life and his work in the uplift of the Negro. Before his name was mentioned, I had decided just about how he would take it, and I was not mistaken. He was bitterly opposed to the educator. End of chapter 36